Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Much Language Such Talk. Today, we're going to be talking about languages and emotion. Have you ever noticed when you're excited or angry, you yell in one language or another? Do you curse more in your second language than your first? Well, today, we're going to have the chance to talk about how our emotions and identity are tied to our languages to the leading expert in the field. So keep listening to find out more. Hello everyone, uh, today you're listening to me, Eva Maria, and I'm joined by my lovely colleague, Corinne. Hello. Hiya. Hello. And we are joined today by Jean-Marc de Valle, who is a professor of applied linguistics and multilingualism at the Department of Languages, Cultures, and Applied Linguistics at Birkbeck University of London. His research focuses on language and emotions very broadly and from many different perspectives, with his main interests being individual differences, psychology of language learning, foreign language acquisition, and multilingualism. He has done research on the challenges that multilinguals face in communicating and recognizing emotions in different contexts, such as emotional resonance of languages, loving in a second language, or swearing in a second language. He has also done research on psychotherapy in a second language with his latest paper that was only published a few weeks ago, focusing on that as exact topic, but also classroom emotions on both positive and negative emotions and language anxiety that students and teachers have to deal with. Professor Devella publishes regularly in high-profile journals, and he collaborates with researchers and experts from around the world. He participates actively in debates on methodological and ideological issues in the field of applied linguistics and multilingualism research. And as if he's not busy enough, he is the director of the Center for Multilingual and Multicultural Research, and the Scholarships and Awards Officer of the International Association for the Psychology of Language Learning. Plus, he is a member of the Executive Committee at the London Second Language Forum. In the past, he has also been the President of the International Association of Multilingualism and the European Second Language Association. He is the General Editor of the Journal of Multilingual and Multicultural Development, and he won the Equality and Diversity Research Award from the British Association for Counseling and Psychotherapy in 2013, and the Robert Gardner Award for Excellence in L2 and Bilingualism Research in 2016. Originally from Belgium, he speaks French, Dutch, English, and Spanish. Welcome, Professor de Valle. You've already answered some questions for our Love Languages episode, and thank you so much for doing that. Honestly, it was fantastic. But what you said was so fascinating that we all agreed we needed to have an entire episode on your research and everything that you've been doing. Because as second language speakers, it is, our emotions are really tied to our languages. So it is really fascinating and we're really excited for this. So are you ready to just jump right in? Ready. So you grew up in a multilingual country, as we mentioned in the introduction, but how did you become interested in languages? Was it just because the environment was so predisposed to having multiple languages or was it something else? Um, well, I grew up speaking French in a Flemish town. So um, with, with the family members within the home, we only used French. And there were some other kids in the street who were in a similar situation where they spoke French at home, but they went to Dutch speaking uh, schools. And um, so I, I, I realized quite early on that our linguistic profile was slightly different from the, the friends uh, in the classroom would speak um, a Flemish dialect uh, at home and, and then more standard Dutch um, at school. And they mocked me for not speaking the dialect at home. And they hated French because French had bourgeois connotations. Oh, wow. So it, it had social implications using French at the time. Uh, the Flemings don't like French very much uh, because of historical reasons. Um, and, and I thought that was pretty unfair. Why did my parents decide to raise us in French if other parents raised their children in the local dialect? And I would say that that was really the heart of my interest in bilingualism and multilingualism and, and language attitudes. Did you ever have a chance to ask your parents why they chose French or is it that they came from a French speaking family? No, no, no. Well, my my mom learned French as a second language at school. My dad grew up speaking French with his parents because they were good uh, bourgeois uh, merchants. Uh, so they were bilingual Dutch-French, but they decided that French was social capital. So that's the language they used uh, with their two sons. And then on the maternal side, my grandfather had been uh, a refugee in France 
during World War I. And he was at school at the time. So he became perfectly fluent also in French. So the two languages were very connected, but it was already ideologically problematic sometimes. Every time, if you are in a language, in a country where there are several languages and they are in competition or the intergroup relationship isn't too good, then every time you open your mouth and you choose a language, you potentially upset your interlocutor or you make an ideological statement, which is what I did when I, I lived in Brussels. I studied in Brussels. I would always start uh, using Dutch and that would typically almost always embarrass the interlocutor who was a, friend, a francophone speaker. Then they typically don't know Dutch. Nice. And these days when I, I play the same trick, I get an answer in English. That's a bit rebellious of you to do, no? I love it though. Because it's it's kind of the, the, the lingua franca between the language communities uh, in, in, in Brussels. And that statement of uh, they chose French because of the social capital is something we've heard quite a lot. And I think it's something that um, second language speakers who are like my mom's from Finland. So Finnish doesn't have as high of a social profile um, or a business profile. And so quite often families will pick the one being like, oh, this language isn't useful. And then you get these strong emotions towards that language where you see it as not as important, which is insane. I love that, though, using Dutch to just be like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> I have the power in this conversation. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, because the, the, the reaction would typically be, they would say, and then I would switch to French and say, and then they say, oh, you speak French so well. And I said, yes, j'ai fait un effort. <laughs> I've made an effort, which was obviously, well, not really honest on my part since I grew up with both languages. <laughs> But it was a political statement. Oh, I love that. Yeah, you've already talked about how like you grew up in this kind of like slightly tense environment, depending on which language you speak. And then you've used it, I guess, kind of to your advantage as you've you know gone through your career. So how did your interest in language and emotion develop then? Was it just because of your life experience or was it something that you saw once you got to university and you're like, oh, this is an area I can study? In fact, I would say that it was a it arose from the move to London, where I, I realized that I lacked the social pragmatic skills to understand my new colleagues emotions, that they would have these very straight faces, the very stiff upper lips, and they would be very polite. And I misinterpreted that at the start as a sign that they agreed with me. So they, they would, for example, I was tasked with um, uh, finding out a way to do language assessments more quickly. And I proposed to use a, a computerized system. And they smiled and they said, interesting. Oof. And then there was no vote and that was it. And, and I thought that interesting meant, okay, that, that's a thumbs up. And then at the end of the meeting, I approached the head of department and say, so can I, you know, can, can we implement this now? And he said, no, of course not. And I said, well, didn't you say interesting? He said, exactly, interesting. And, and he turned on me. And I realized so that the word interesting can in fact mean exactly the opposite, depending on where, on where the, how the intonation is exactly. And after that, I went through a silent period. I just listened and observed my, my colleagues. And, and then to gain the social pragmatic upper hand, I started choosing French uh, during departmental meetings because all of them, it was a French department. So their French was excellent, but they were foreign language users of French. They didn't master the pragmatics of French quite as well as I did. So that gave me an upper hand. And so the departmental meetings then turned into code switching meetings. And that worked perfectly. And then after a while, of course, I, I did master the, the rules of, of English, of polite English interaction at staff meetings, which is typically, I'm too polite to say, but I think I work too much. I think you should do this task. <laughs> so it, it's something very specific. Nice, but that's a clever way of using bilingualism yes. to your advantage. Yes. That's very nice. <laughs> I really like that. As, yeah, Ava and I have spoken about this since... Neither of us are from the UK as well. It's quite interesting when you first come here and you start talking to people. And first of all, I have not mastered the art of small talk at all. Sometimes I'm quite happy I got raised in the States because if someone doesn't like your work, they're just going to tell you. 
And so you're like, cool, great. And so sometimes you come out of a meeting here and you're just like, so what am I supposed to do? Did they like that plan? <laughs> Did they not? Exactly. And it is, it really is something <laughs> you have to learn. The word interesting is quite weaponized as well. It's like, yes. <laughs> in what way is it interesting? Do you like it? Do you hate it? Do we have to fight later? <laughs> so I think it's inevitable that you start uh, stumbling in the dark and you may have, in fact, inflated idea about your linguistic skills uh, in a language because the fact that you understand the BBC News, for example, or you understand the, the Guardian when you, you read it, doesn't prepare you for the pragmatic games that are normal in any society. And that's really what it is about, right? In a staff meeting, people are trying to hand out work they don't want to do themselves but they do it in a way that you need to recognize and you need to know how to react to these. So that's, um, well, that was fun. And, and what was combined also with another aspect that I had been doing research until that point on psycholinguistics of uh, the acquisition of French. And um, an aunt of mine had asked me what it was that I was doing. And she was um, working in Belgium in palliative care. So she was, um, you know, helping people die. Uh, and I have a, a, a huge respect for, for her commitment. And, and you know, she, she is a, an amazing uh, woman. And so I explained to her that I was uh, looking at gender errors uh, and how sometimes uh, French uh, L2 users uh, would use the correct gender just after the noun, but then by the end of the sentence, they would make incorrect gender agreement. And so she looked at me and smiled and said, so that's splitting hairs, really. And I laughed because I say, I, I had to admit that, yeah, it wasn't making a big difference on society. <laughs> and so I, I said, you know, yeah, but I enjoy it and I'm being paid for it. And, and I thought, that's pretty feeble, really. And then I thought, maybe, maybe I, I need to do something that has more potential for positive societal impact. And emotion, I realized, opened new horizons. And then I met Aleta Pavlenko. And that was also around 9-11, um, where we, we suddenly realized that, in fact, as an applied linguistic community, we had a duty towards society to defend diversity and that we needed to do something to understand multilingualism better and fight against monolingual ideologies. And so the combination of these two factors made that we started digging into emotion uh, in second languages, and we invited psychologists and, and people working on uh, linguistic autobiographies of bilinguals, and we got these people together from these different disciplines, and that was so exciting. I, I was so much happier hearing people talk about things that I had never heard before, and I realized that I had been uh, stuck in, in a very small room and that it was fantastic to, to interact with other people. And that, in fact, we might be able to make a positive difference on society because we, we, we realized, for example, Aneta Pavlenko's work on forensic linguistics, that if you are a foreign language user of English, you might not understand when a policeman reads you your Miranda rights that you know you have a right to remain silent but you can you know do you want to waive your rights and then waive they you know they think that's waived so so this can lead to injustice yeah. and the work then by Katie Reiner and colleagues from Boston uh, about uh, lie detector technology how if you are a foreign language user you react differently when they hook you up to that machine and the readings that would say oh he's or he she is lying means absolutely not that if, if you're uh, if the if the person uh, is a foreign language user so even though that person may be speaking english really well the physiological reactions will be completely different and there were multiple cases where the police got that completely wrong and uh, anita pavlenko acted as a forensic linguist to explain to the judge that that this was in fact a miscarriage of justice because this uh, methodology was not adapted for foreign language users. And, and that's something that I think is, is really important. And so I started looking then in multilingualism uh, in psychotherapy, where there is the same monolingual ideology, 
So the, the psychotherapist assumes that if the client speaks his or her language, it is able to talk about the weather in that language, that that person is equally capable of, of, of talking about the trauma uh, that he or she has suffered. And obviously the answer is no, that person may code switch, that person may struggle to talk about certain things into, in certain languages. And the code switching is highly relevant because it allows that person to zoom in or out if it becomes too painful. And so we, we developed a, a whole new area of research in that area. And we, we, we got a, a nice award from the British Association of Psychotherapy and Counseling for highlighting that issue. And, that's, and the thing is that we, we focus on um, psychotherapy, but obviously that applies to any kind of interaction between, say, a policeman or a social worker or a, a judge who, who has very limited understanding of linguistics and social pragmatics and of language and emotion. And hence, I, I feel, and Aneta too, that we're doing something useful for society and not just building abstract little theories to enjoy in the ivory tower. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, that was a nice little promo because we have an entire episode on forensic linguistics that was so, so interesting, where exactly these topics were brought up as well. So if anybody who's listening wants to check that out, that is episode one in season two. And it's, yeah, it was fascinating. And we're going to come back to the whole psychotherapy as well, because that is fantastic. Fantastic work. So we're going to come back to that later. You've uh, already talked about how, you know, you've identified that people will react differently in different languages or in different situations and things like that. So in what ways are language and emotions connected? Or even for that matter, how is your identity and your language and your emotion or one or the other in some kind of love triangle of language, identity and emotion? Like, how are they connected? They are absolutely profoundly connected and entangled. And it's really hard to disentangle them. So how you feel about your languages is also typically how you feel about yourself. A language is typically a marker of identity. So as I said, in Belgium, when I opened my mouth, used one language or the other, I immediately situated myself as being part of that community and not that other community. So it, it is a powerful signal. And, and that was, in fact, the kind of thing that, that uh, psychotherapists, for example, need to understand that multilingualism is a crucial part of a multilingual's identity. It means that that person has had to reflect on their identity, uh, that that identity may have changed, is maybe still in the process of change. That person also may have worries about no longer having the identity that he or she had, um, that, you know, hearing comments from parents or grandparents or family members back in the home country about, you know, you, your behavior has changed or you have a funny accent in your first language now. Or all that can, in fact, be profoundly unsettling because we tend to think of ourselves as relatively stable. And, and then suddenly you're told that you're kind of out of tune and you realize that you have developed a kind of a hybrid identity. And I think you need to be accepting of that and that you need to be good to yourself and accept the fact that, well, yes, you change and that's okay. There is nothing to be ashamed of but because there can be this um, element of shame if people lose their first language, for example, uh, language attrition. Uh, Monica Schmidt has done wonderful uh, work of the, uh, on this. We have an entire episode on that as well <laughs> with Monica Schmidt. <laughs> if, if you suddenly start struggling in your first language, you may feel very bad about that. That like you betrayed your community, that, that you, you, you didn't cherish your roots. And we all hear, you know, your roots are important, et cetera, et cetera. So, so why have you moved on? So you, you, you can be silently accused of, of being a traitor to, to your linguistic and your cultural community. So that is highly emotional. So, so the emotion is everywhere uh, in there. And, and obviously, you also realize that you become part of this new community, this new linguistic and language community. And, and I realized that I have become emotionally, I have become a British professor. Although my passport says that I'm Belgian, if I present a paper in France, 
they look at me and they absolutely don't get it. Why is this guy speaking French with a Belgian accent that we don't like very much, but okay. But he is not acting like a Belgian or a French professor because a, a Belgian or a French professor, they would, you know, swell a little bit and, and they would drop some references to philosophical sources and some, you know, to impress the audience about how smart and erudite they are. That's typically not what the British professor does, right? The British professor makes a little joke and gets straight to the point. And if I do that in France, in French, but using this British rhetorical way, they don't enjoy it much. And I realize that I cannot go back to be that kind of Belgian professor that I used to be because I'm no longer that person. And I have changed. And, and it's not to upset the French audience. It's just that this is the person I have become. I'm pretty pleased with who, uh, with, with the identity that I have now. And hence, I will not compromise that. And I can talk to, in French, to you about my, my research, but I will do it in a British way. So, so it's, it's confusing for the audience. I think that that's, you, you put that very well. And I think using languages as well to talk about these identity shifts is, a lot of people have experienced this. I wanted to bring it down a little bit to the fact that like, this can happen just moving from dialect to dialect as well. Sure. You move to a new city and all of a sudden the way you speak changes and then you go home and then people are like, you're a different person now. And that is, it's incredibly hard to hear that. Since I've had the chance to live in a couple of different places every time I speak to friends from back home, they'll just be like, oh, that's, you, you said that weird. I've recently started saying that everything is grand. I don't know why I do that. And people will point it out all the time. And it just, it, it, it is really important to recognize that you are just changing as a person. There's nothing actually inherently wrong with you. Though I do wonder if you go back to Belgium and teach there for a period of time, do you think you'll start to lose some of your British ways? Probably because you adapt, right? I think I've been, well, I've been in London for 28 years now. So, so I, I think I wouldn't change back. Hmm. Of course, it doesn't mean that I would be able to tune in to some of the things that are cool these days. Or, or I could <laughs> kind of, uh, I realize that I'm slightly out of tune with my language also because the language has evolved and the cultural references and norms have evolved since I left. And although I return there, you know, regularly, it's not enough to completely reconnect. I think I could reconnect up to a point, but it would probably never be perfect. Mm. Yeah. I had my uh, brother visiting a couple of years ago. And after a while, he pointed out, no, actually, he saw something on Instagram that said, like, people are different in the languages they speak or their personality manifests differently. And he said that to me, which is like, I observed that when you're speaking English, you're completely different than when you're speaking German. And I was like, what? I never, really? Am I? I don't know. And then I started thinking about it. And I think I have to agree to a certain degree, at least. I swear a lot more in English than I do in German, <laughs> for example. But um, yeah, it is, it is super interesting. But the, the thing is also that there are a number of things that happen to you that you don't even realize through the process of L2 socialization and acculturation. When I arrived in London, I realized that I was shaking hands too often and that my colleagues would look at my hand and, and would be horrified. And, and say, but like, oh, we already shook hands yesterday. <laughs> don't touch me. Oh, exactly. Or I would stand too close to my interlocutor. Um, and so we had a drink. I remember a drink in the French department and I was, uh, you know, talking to the head of department and he was taking a step back every time. And I took a step forward. And so we, we crossed the whole room. And then I realized thinking, well, why is he walking away from me? And then it suddenly dawned on me that maybe I was invading his private space. <laughs> and then I realized, in fact, because I had never read about that and I wasn't aware of it. That, that, in fact, Belgians are typically at half an arm length distance of each other uh, in a social meeting. And the Brits, it's really one arm length. So I was invading his private space. And, and so, okay, so I adapted that. And then going back to Belgium, <laughs> I remember a couple of years ago, I was at a reception 
and a friend of mine was um, talking to me and I suddenly realized that I could smell the peanuts on his breath. And I took half a step back and he took half a step forward. And I took another <laughs> half step back and he took another step. And, and I suddenly realized, shit, I turned into a Brit. <laughs> <laughs> You're that person though. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. beautiful. It's something that I've definitely experienced myself. Cause like, so yeah, my mom's from Finland. My dad's from Israel. And so Israelis are quite physically close to you. They also have, you have a lot more physical contact during a conversation as well. And I guess, I don't know if it's just because I lived in Japan before moving here or if it's because of my Finnish side or a combination of both. But now whenever someone like touches me on the shoulder or touches me on the arm during conversation, I'm like, oh God, hello. <laughs> I've completely gotten like, I go to Israel, my family starts to like touch my face and hug me and I'm like, oh, too close. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's so weird and it just happens. Yeah. And today it's usually me that touches her because first of all, we sit next to each other, but also I, I'm a very physical person i touch everything and everyone all the time a lot of elbow so. touches and i'm like hello <laughs> <laughs> um i i think we've yeah we kind of segue perfectly into this next one we got a question from instagram how do different languages feel different to some people because there is that like your everyday thing like how, what could cause that to happen and like how does it come about uh, i did a, a study on that in in 2016 and and it was a sample of uh, 1,000, more than 1,500 multilinguals, and 85% of them said that they definitely felt different uh, when they switched languages. Um, but I do realize that it's a little bit to do with the definition of different. The, the question is, how do people interpret the meaning of different? Yes. But it, because it could be superficially different in the sense that, you know, you may stumble a little bit in your second language, so you don't feel as self-assured in your second language. But that doesn't mean that you are a different person. It just means that your behavior may be slightly different or that you may not control the way you come across as well in your second language as you can in, in your first language. So you may be less funny uh, in your second language. So that's the reason why you might feel different. So. Personally, I think that these differences are typically relatively superficial. They can be linked to the body language. You know, you don't wave your arms as much if you're an Italian and you, you're speaking English compared to speaking Italian. Or, you know, how far are you from your interlocutor? Or do you uh, tell a certain type of cultural specific jokes in that foreign language that, in fact, don't quite translate from your first language? So all these things can make you feel different and you may think that you are maybe, well, sometimes you may feel more liberated uh, in your second language, uh, that there are things that you can show parts of yourself in that language that you couldn't show in your first language. So it allows you to perform a slightly different version of yourself. And obviously it, it's fascinating, but we shouldn't exaggerate uh, this either, because if, if you fill out a personality questionnaire, you will typically still be on the introverted side, uh, whether you fill in uh, that questionnaire uh, in English or, or, or in another language. Yeah. yeah. But it's also got to do with how you're perceived, right? Because I remember, I mean, that's also a slightly different situation because I was learning Dutch at the time. But when I moved to the Netherlands, I did like a the intense four-week Dutch course for Germans. And then I started studying in Dutch. I was just basically thrown into cold water. But because I was still in the learning phase, I was the quiet one, which I can tell you I am not. I am she not. She is not, 100% no. <laughs> no, I talk a lot and I talk all the time and I'm very loud and very lively. But because I was still very much observing of how the language works and I didn't have the confidence yet to actually just be who I am in Dutch, I was just sitting back and basically soaking everything up like a sponge. And it took about a semester. But by that point, I had become the quiet Ava. <laughs> and I, I was just sitting there the entire time, just like, oh, if only you knew. I have so much to say. I just don't know how to say it yet. And then after about a semester, I had a whole vocabulary explosion, basically. And everybody was just like, oh, oh, you do speak. And I was like, oh, yes. And I've been holding back. But of course, that's a slightly different situation. But that's how I was perceived because of the language I was learning. Yeah. But yeah, it was a situation. Yeah, I remember there's, well, 
I don't watch Modern Family, so I don't even remember name, names of the characters, but the there's that one mother, the Spanish one? Gloria! Gloria, there we go, thank you. They're having an argument, and someone says something, because she messes up her English or something like that, and she gets really frustrated, and she actually yells, like, you don't know how smart I am in Spanish. And, and I was just <laughs> like, there was a moment even for me, like, the, most of my interactions happened in English that I was like, oh, this is such a good point. Like, both of my parents are non-native English speakers. And every once in a while, my mom will get frustrated and just continue talking in Finnish. Or my dad, actually, my dad almost never, like, goes, switches to Hebrew. But, like, I can imagine that moment of feeling slightly trapped within yourself. And if you haven't lived in a second language environment, it is kind of an alien feeling. But it is. It's so frustrating. Like, even for something as simple as you're at the grocery store and they're asking you, do you have a club card? And you're just like... How do I tell them I don't... What did um, you just say? Maybe? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's it's really... It can be really upsetting. But yeah, it is a very subjective thing because like, how strong is your language and all of those like little things? Like, what's the situation in all of those contexts? So yeah, it's it's a pretty intense thing to happen. But also, yes, as you said, on a questionnaire, you won't be a psychopath in one language and a normal person in another. <laughs> or maybe in English. <laughs> <laughs> that would be an interesting topic to research if you can find <laughs> participants. So I've already kind of mentioned it, that I do curse a lot in English. And I do curse in German as well, but I, somehow it's more in English. And I mean, Korean curses. I don't want to say just as much, but a lot as well. I grew up outside New York, so stereotypically, apparently New Jersey and New York, we curse a lot. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So when, when we're together... It's never ending. <laughs> yeah. But you have looked into the use of swear words in non-native language speakers. So what, uh, what did you find? Why is it that, like, for example, me in a second language, I'm much more open to dropping F-bombs everywhere? <laughs> well, I would have to correct you. or, or, or I think it's, it, it's not a good idea to talk about non-native speakers. Oh, I know. Uh, yeah. I, I really don't like that idea because it's the whole... Uh, we hate it too, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. I prefer to talk about foreign language users and first language users, because then it means that, in fact, you, you don't have to conform to a norm. You, you can be yourself, however you are, Yeah. as a first or a foreign language user. And, and it's fascinating. We seem to be able to throw these F-bombs more easily um, if we are foreign language users of English, because it doesn't seem to have the same impact uh, on us. Nope. Uh, as, as words in the first language. So it, 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 it's linked, I think, um, to, well, uh, it, it's what the literature suggests, that when you learn the first language, uh, words are acquire specific connotations. So you remember as a child when you used a bad word and you got a slap from your mom or you got told off by your teacher. Uh, but you do remember that using that same word with your friends that everybody smiled and thought, yeah, cool, you know, <laughs> we are part of the bad guys here. Um, so you, 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 you have connections with images, with sounds, and, and they are rich conceptual representations. So you, you know exactly, you, you have an exact calibration of using that word with either a hedge or a word to reinforce it will have that effect and you remember people in that situation reacting to that specific word. Now, if you learn a foreign language, especially if you learn it only through uh, formal instruction, you, you may know, oh, this is a bad word, but you have never seen the effect or you have never experienced people looking at you and reacting to how you, what it was that you said. So, so it's slightly vague. You, you are not exactly sure about the calibration. And then you realize that even though you, you do become, you, you do acquire that social pragmatic competence and you observe that word being used around you and or you see it in films, that even then, how people react to you using that word will never be exactly the same. If they detect a, a slight foreign accent, then they might think, oh, that's a foreigner. That foreigner probably has no idea that that F-bomb is really offensive. So, so, so we will forgive her or him, but they don't know what they're saying. So as a foreign language user, it's sometimes hard to, to come across as brutal and violent and, and rule-breaking because the assumption is that maybe you don't know the rules. Yeah. 
Right. That's a good point. I'm now thinking of my mother, who my mom, like me, also swears quite a bit. Though if she was here, she'd be like, no, I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. As a a Finnish woman, just like, (laughs) she will curse like it's no tomorrow. And I do wonder if people are just like, oh, you know, she's just using the words because she's angry and, you know, like, it's just easier. And it's just like, no, I'm pretty sure my mom knew what she was doing. Oh, I know very well what I'm doing. And I'm, I'm also now, of course, because I'm a proficient speaker of English, I know the weight of the word. Although in school, we really weren't, first of all, we weren't taught those kind of words, but you encounter them in movies and in TV shows. And of course, once you actually like move abroad or travel, but um, that's where the words then get the, the weight, of course. And we were actually talking about that yesterday because for a lot of first language English speakers, the word moist has a very... Physically uncomfortable. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what it is. Yeah. There's something about... It's, also, it's knowing what the situation is and also the word itself is physically doesn't sound like other words, if that makes sense. But there's another one that I can't remember right now that has a similar effect that whenever I hear it, I'm like, oh, no. No, and I don't, I don't have that reaction to the word moist because... I, for it's, it's in, in some degree, I believe that it's actually a taught reaction that because you see a lot of people reacting like that, you're just like, oh, I guess that's, that word is disgusting. So I'm just going to, you know, adapt and whatever. Um, but I don't have that reaction to the word moist. Like I, I don't know what the deal is <laughs> because there's just, just a normal word. And yes, if you use it in weird, context well you just need to think of a really humid summer day you've been outside walking for hours it feels like it's about to start raining any moment you definitely need to change your shirt because you've been sweating for hours and then you then you think of like i'm very moist and you're like that's that's what i yeah, think but of my connotation my connotation with the word is like a really moist chocolate sponge cake <laughs> and that's just amazing that's the only good connotation of moist in english honestly everything else yeah but that's my that's my initial connotation when i hear the word moist i go like oh hell yeah and other people go (laughs) so i have the opposite reaction because i'm not a first language english speaker i think it's really about um, becoming aware of um, the norms of a speech community yeah and 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 realizing that a particular word because words are not intrinsically offensive or not yeah yeah we decided to make them that way yeah, it, it, it's how the speech community perceive these words and the category they, they are put in. And so it, it, I, I was a bit surprised that the Dutch and English cognates like kont uh, in Dutch um, it is kont uh, in, in, in English. But, but it is much more offensive in English than it is in Dutch, yeah. despite the fact that it, it's the same word yeah. and it, it, it refers to the same thing. But somehow, in one language, it has become uh, very taboo, much more so than the other language. Uh, and the same in French, cool, which, which is a relatively mild word. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I realized it isn't mild at all uh, in English. So, so that, that's quite um, interesting, that words are not intrinsically uh, offensive. It, it's really the speech community that decides, and it can evolve, obviously. If you use a word so often, the F-bombs, if you drop an F-bomb every five minutes, people will just stop reacting to it. They will know that it's no more than a mild swear word uh, in your mouth. Yeah, yeah. especially if you're from Scotland or from Australia, then the, the F-word is just a term of endearment almost. Exactly. It, it's a filler <laughs> word at this point. It's when you don't know it's what the a, word yeah. is. It's just your new um at this point. Yeah. Yeah. But speaking of swear words, I have kind of like a segue because I've been called out for swearing too much before, especially in the US. And I was just wondering what your stance is on, um, especially in front of children, because I mean, I try not to, because all my friends in Germany have kids and I try not to swear in front of them. But sometimes when you use the word like scheiße, for example, in German, shit, um, people say like, oh, you, we don't say that. And it's like, but why not? It's a word like any other word. Why are you putting that much weight on that particular word? Because they're going to encounter it in some point anyway. And we all know that they're going to use it eventually. Why not expose a five-year-old to it? Like, I, I've never understood that. <laughs> yeah, I don't really have an opinion on this. Um, I think it's more a dilemma for foreign language teachers. Should they teach these words in a foreign language class? They backfire on them. 100%. (laughs) I would say so, because I've had some weird situations with that. Yeah. Parents may complain. 
Yeah. The, the head teacher might complain. So, so it, it, it's good to be careful. I've compared these words to verbal dynamite. <laughs> and students are interested in verbal dynamite. They, of course, they're, they're excited about it. Yes, yes, they are. So, so I think we need to teach them, but we need to tell them that, you know, this is a red flag word or the C word in English is in fact a double red flag word. <laughs> yeah. uh, you, you, you may regret using it. So, so be very aware. Yeah. O- on the other hand, I have also done research, found that in fact, swearing and swear words are mostly used with friends in a joking way. So it it happens very infrequently that swear words are used aggressively with strangers. That's pretty exceptional. So um, so I I guess that, again, you need to acquire the social pragmatics of the speech community you are in, that with your colleagues from work, there are certain words you can't use, but it would be okay to use these same words in the sports club where you are, where other people people use these words um, more regularly and where it's not considered offensive. So it really depends. Yeah. I really wonder if this research has been done in Scotland and in Australia, because I'm some of the ways that I hear people talk, I mean, I guess since our department at Edinburgh is quite international, yeah, we don't probably hear as much swearing as you do. But when you're like in other environments, like you can sometimes just like, in the streets. I mean, obviously in the street, but like you'll be in a store and you'll just like hear the employees talking to each other or like friends of mine in other situations. And you're just like, oh, it's quite common. I don't know. Maybe it, I don't know if stereotypically and because of that, we inflate how much we think we hear swearing while we're around in Scotland. But it'd be quite interesting because, of course, it is a cultural thing as well. How much of that that you put in there. Um, but that's really interesting. I hadn't really thought about it, but yeah, I think one of the main things about it is teaching situational awareness is my big thing about teaching kids swearing. Yeah. Yes. Cause like, yeah. it is that thing that you do need to learn that like, oh, some people will take this very badly. And so you shouldn't use it necessarily all the time. But if I'm in a party, I'm not really going to hold back how I swear when I'm at work. I should know that I shouldn't necessarily do that though. One of my bosses did was like, Hey, Kareen, um, when you're working, can you, um, maybe not curse so much. And I was like, oh no, I didn't even notice I was doing it just because I was so comfortable in my work environment. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, that's important to learn. Yeah, 100%. I just, I don't know what it is with um, kids that curse. I find it just so, so, mm-hmm. so cute and so funny. When I was, um, just a little anecdote, when I was in the US, I was um, an au pair and I was babysitting this, at that point, three-year-old. And I don't know what he was doing. I don't remember, but he, I think he broke something and just under his breath, not even to me, just under his breath, he said, oh, fuck. <laughs> and I was just like, that is the perfect context to use the F word. <laughs> yeah. And he just said it quietly to himself. And I had to leave the room because I laughed so hard. It's just, I don't know what it is with kids. And I don't know. But yeah, that was adorable. Anyway, back to it. <laughs> So we were talking about a lot how, about how words have certain types of meaning and weight to them. So one of the areas you study is foreign language classrooms and language anxiety. So in what way do negative emotions affect the learning process? This is something that I've been really interested in because I, I have noticed how uh, students of mine suffered from foreign language anxiety. And so I, I did research on this. And then I realized that, in fact, um, researchers had been too focused on anxiety and on negative emotions. Um, and with Peter McIntyre in 2014, we published a paper where we also introduced foreign language enjoyment. And we were interested in finding out whether anxiety and enjoyment were opposite ends of the same dimension, or whether they were separate dimensions, meaning that you could be in fact both anxious and enjoy the class, or, or, or in fact not being anxious but not enjoying the class either. And, and what we discovered was that they are weakly negatively correlated. So people who are very anxious typically don't report very high levels of enjoyment, but the correlation was weak, meaning that these are really independent dimensions and that there is no seesaw effect, meaning that pushing down anxiety will not automatically raise enjoyment. And the pedagogical implication of that is that for teachers, it's in fact more important to try and make sure that the students are enjoying themselves by doing challenging, difficult things that just match their skills and that they should create a safe environment 
in order to lower general anxiety, but, but they shouldn't worry too much about some kids being anxious and remaining silent because at some point they, they may come out of it or, or they may overcome their anxiety or they may learn to manage their anxiety. And, and we, we've done a couple of meta-analysis on this topic. And yes, there is a negative correlation between high levels of anxiety and foreign language performance. There is also a positive correlation between positive emotions and, and foreign language performance. And so I guess that, that teachers need to create a positive emotional atmosphere in, the, uh, in their classroom where uh, students can play, explore, take risks without fear of being ridiculed or punished. And I think that in, interest in, in the foreign language culture can also help. Um, and what we found in later research is also that the teacher is really the person who can affect enjoyment more than anxiety. So you, you can create a safe environment and then you can really try and push the enjoyment up to the point where students get in a state of flow and they forget about the context. They forget about the time. They forget about the fact that they are using a foreign language. And that, in fact, is the best way for them to progress. That is, that is something wonderful. I think it is hard for some teachers to get past that because if you have a really big class, if you're stressed yourself, it can be really hard to put those in there. And it's something I try to do. I, I occasionally work with exchange kids from different countries coming here to like be in a language immersion. And they're just like, oh, do we have to do grammar worksheets? And I'm like, no, this is your opportunity. You're all C1 level. So like, we're going to just sit here. You're very proficient and we're just going to have fun with this language. And honestly, it the way that you see the like on day one, they're all like, none of them want to pay attention. They're all just staring at their phones. They don't think you can't see their phones under the desk. You can see them. <laughs> and they're just like, oh, I don't want to do this. And on the last day, I'll have them like playing games and yelling at each other in English and just like having such a good time about it. And it's probably been one of the most like fulfilling experiences as a teacher, because it's like once they can have that opportunity to use the language that way, students who wouldn't necessarily engage are just like, who cares if I make a mistake? Exactly. We're still interacting. Yeah. That's a very good point. Yeah. I really love that. Very, very good point. Yeah. But now that we've kind of discussed negative emotions, you recently published a paper just in early April of 2022 that focused on psychotherapy in foreign language settings uh, with the title being English enables me to visit my pain, exploring experiences of using a later learned language and the healing journey of survivors of sexuality persecution, which is a very intense topic, of course, but the implications of that study are huge. So in what way does the foreign language allow people to cope with or to talk about trauma that they faced, for example? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Because that is such, well, like I said, intense, but such an interesting topic. Yeah, it goes back, in fact, about uh, to, to what we said about um, swear words in a foreign language that don't quite feel as powerful. So it's the same phenomenon in, in psychotherapy in that using uh, a foreign language can allow a certain detachment, uh, a certain distancing uh, from the topic of the conversation. Uh, and so in, in that paper, we looked at three people who had been tortured in their homeland for their sexual orientation. So they were homosexual. I wasn't aware of this when, when we started. Um, that torture shatters your sense of self. You are completely shattered. You have to rebuild yourself from, well, you have to rebuild yourself in a new environment. And these uh, people came to England to seek political uh, asylum. They were refugees. And they met in an organization uh, called Room to Heal, uh, where they had group therapy and individual therapy. And uh, my co-author was my PhD student, and she was a voluntary cook uh, in that organization. And she realized that, in fact, talking to the people there, that language choice and language preferences, they, they talked about that, how they could discuss certain things in certain languages, but not in other languages. And that awakened her research interest, and she decided to do research on that. And she was well-placed. Of course, she was an insider, and then we had to go through strict uh, ethical procedure and anonymity, etc. cetera. Uh, also, she couldn't talk with them about the trauma itself. Uh, but she could only talk about 
their language preferences when talking about trauma. So it was a very delicate uh, situation, but the data uh, that she obtained were, were absolutely wonderful. Uh, and so one of the participants said exactly that, that using English allowed that person to talk about these horrible things that happened to him. But then we also discovered that this is a dynamic situation. So that that person had um, managed to rebuild an identity uh, in English, an identity in, in where it was absolutely possible to be proud of uh, his sexual orientation, uh, something that was impossible in the first language. But that the first language, in fact, also regained some, some positivity uh, in the sense that he realized that the stuff that had happened to him in that language, that maybe it was too painful to use that language to talk about it, but that there was also a pride that that language represented a culture of which there were some aspects of it he was really proud about, uh, including the poetry and the storytelling and the, the cultural richness uh, of, of that culture. And so he set up an organization to promote that language. So, so it, it, it was a way really of rebuilding the identity that there wasn't a total rejection of the language. After an initial rejection, uh, it kind of shifted again. And I think that that was a nice illustration of what we discussed earlier also. It is that we are in fact constantly changing as bilinguals, also as we are aging, that hopefully we become wiser, we have more insights, we have more live experience, we can revisit some of the things that we thought and realize that maybe we were wrong about certain things that maybe we need to adapt a little bit or, or, or suddenly we realize, oh, I have turned into a British person for certain things, but I still retain some of the things that I'm uh, really proud about of my heritage culture. So, so I wouldn't say that this was just a paper on negative emotions. I mean, it was uh, the, these people had suffered horribly, but in fact, they were... Uh, quite positive. Uh, it was really about rebuilding and regaining trust and confidence and, and a new identity. That just, I, I, I just find that it illustrates very well the power that language holds, right? Absolutely. It's a very good illustration of that and fascinating and good for them. Yeah. Seriously. That's wonderful. Wonderful to hear. To be able to come out of that with a new sense of self and yeah. worth in that kind of way is really impressive, honestly. And I, I just, yeah. I was thinking also as well, like just the importance of the training for counselors to have that kind of understanding and awareness. I mean, obviously, if you are a trauma counselor, you will hopefully have the experience um, of how to deal with that. Oh, well, you should, but also understanding that multicultural, multilingual environment as well. But to be able to use language in such a tool, yeah, as you were saying, it's just such a powerful thing to be able to do, to be able to help people rebuild that sense of self. That's yeah, really beautiful. It is. It's really wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So we have two more questions. So you've done extensive research and you publish a lot on the topic of language and emotions from different perspectives and all kinds of angles. Um, so... Is there something that stands out to you? Is there something that you find most fascinating in what you've studied so far? I think that what I find most fascinating is that different people, in fact, is the uniqueness of language journeys and the uniqueness of the acculturation and the, the foreign language socialization process, that no two individuals go through a similar experience, even if they had identical linguistic profiles and personality profiles, they would still have a unique journey. I find that amazingly interesting. And it's also the unpredictability of how we will turn out to be. Because it will depend on the books you read or the films you see or the person you fall in love with or you fall out of love with or an experience that you had in a certain country that turned you off from that language and country or that turned you on and you remained and you fell in love with the country and the language and the, and, and the unpredictability of it. I found absolutely fascinating because I use stats to try and find big patterns, etc. But then I'm particularly interested in the outliers, the ones that go against the trends, that they, they are atypical 
for, for some reason. And then it's great to interview these people or get to know more about them. And then you realize, oh, but they are, the reality is so much more messy and complex than we assume it to be. Because you can learn languages, but maybe these were languages that you had had contact with in the past, but that you had forgotten. And then you, you relearn them. Or, or then because of family connections, you, you always had a sentimental link with a language, even though you never knew the language. And at some point in your life, suddenly you have a chance to learn that language and, and, and you realize, oh, why haven't I done this before? And, and so all that I find absolutely fascinating. It, it's really, and just also these three uh, sexuality persecution survivors, you know, the, what, what amazing stories. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm really interested in. It's the human side in our scientific uh, endeavors. That's a very good answer. Yeah, that sums it up very well. But also, just to point out that because of the, the individual differences are what makes it so interesting, also makes it so difficult. I don't want to say harder, but yeah, it's a little difficult to to study, to find patterns, right? Because that's, of course, the main idea behind research is to kind of explain what is happening. But I... I fully agree with what you said. I find that uh, the individual differences are just what makes it so special, 100%. Yeah, I also find it so interesting that even with this wide wealth of individual differences that make us all ourselves by those little things, as you said, like little books and things like that, there is so much shared experience of like this human experience, which is why I am so vehemently like this whole native speakerism thing and how it affects how you present yourself. Yeah. Well, it's to a certain degree, yeah, the emotional connection. But we have, as humans, we have these lived experiences to some degree that are, we all get tired, we all get hungry, we all get angry, we all get sad, like all of these things that it does connect us. But of course, it does make us who we are as individuals. And it's just, yeah. as you say, it's, it is really fas fascinating and it's really beautiful as well. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so the last question is, what are areas that you think would need more scientific attention in the future? Without giving too much away on what you're working on, of course. <laughs> the, the thing is that I think there are so many areas that, that I would love to explore further. I, I think it's more an attitude to be open to uh, interdisciplinarity uh, and more than just words about, you know, it, it's one thing to say, oh, we love interdisciplinary, interdisciplinarity. But if you submit an interdisciplinary paper to a journal, then they say, well, you know, we don't really like this or the, you, you could try a low level journal. And it doesn't quite fit. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the, the attitude towards interdisciplinary research needs to change. Um, and I think it is good to collaborate with people who know more about that area of research than you. So when at the start of the interview, we, we talked about how I rely on people who know more about stats than I do to, do, to develop good psychometrically strong instruments, etc. So I think it, it helps to work in a team where each member of the team has specific knowledge that can help the team reach, produce an output that none of the members of the team could have produced on their own. I think that's in fact the, the most stimulating research because you also learn most from each other and you realize that some of the things that you didn't find problematic, that other people have a problem with that. And then you can have these very useful internal uh, discussions and I think that's really the way to push our understanding of complex social issues forward through collaboration, also with practitioners. Like my, my work with uh, Beverly Costa, she's an active psychotherapist. I learned so much from her. And then I realized that so much of the stuff that psychotherapists talk about applies to the foreign language classroom and that there were connections that I hadn't dreamt about. And so that's why I think we, we, we should encourage people to do interdisciplinary research, to read stuff beyond the walls of, of their little area of research. Fantastic. Yeah, I, again, wholeheartedly agree. That's a, that's a very good point. Yeah. I honestly, one of the things I miss from doing my undergraduate degree, I worked as a research assistant in a lab, and it is one of the things that I miss the most is just having lab meetings and just talking to each other about what are we all doing? What's going on? Because in our department, doing PhDs is quite isolating if you're not part of a lab and there's only two or three labs in our department. Just the opportunity to talk to people who know more than you. And then you can like be like, well, I've thought about this. And they're like, well, what about this? And then an hour later, you're like, 
what we got? A research plan? Let's do this. And it's just, uh, it is. It's very stimulating. Yeah. It's incredibly exciting. Yeah. My recommendation is go for a walk with the colleague, have a chat, <laughs> have a beer, talk also about other things. Don't just focus on, on, on work and see how other things may in fact suddenly inspire you in unexpected ways. Those are good final words. Yes. Keep an, keep an open mind. Those are great. Honestly. Yeah. I'm thinking we're going to start scheduling walks into our, into our days now. <laughs> Just being like we're getting up and we're walking outside. I love that. Thank you. That concludes our episode. Thank you so much, Professor Devala, for, for joining Thank us. Thank you so much. Yeah, That was highly interesting. And uh, we really appreciate that you took the time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that's everything from us today. Thank you so much, Professor Devala, for joining us again so we can talk about how language and emotions are connected. What an amazing and fascinating topic this is. And we'll definitely be keeping an eye for more research since you seem to publish every day. Don't forget to subscribe on our website or on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. As well, if you want to learn more about Professor Devale, we'll have links to where you can find out more about him and his research. We have one more episode coming your way in a few weeks just before our summer break. So stay tuned and feel free to get in touch with questions and suggestions for season three. For now, stay healthy, stay curious, and... Cheerie! Owai naleab mai. Avec plaisir, maître It was a pleasure talking to you both. We really didn't curse as much as I thought we were going to, and I'm... I'm kind of sad no, about that. I'm, I'm a little disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> Why didn't we curse more? For fuck's sake. I'm a little disappointed. For fuck's sake. Anyway.